We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Stardust Memories on September 26, 1980. It was written and directed by Woody Allen and released by United Artists. The working title for this film was Woody Allen No. 4, as it is a clear homage to Fellini's Eight and a Half. Allen has vehemently denied that this film is autobiographical, insisting instead that this is just about a director having a, quote, nervous breakdown and, in spite of success, has come to a point in his life where he is having a bad time, end quote. This was Allen's last film with United Artists before following a team of producers who left to start Orion, where he stayed for the next decade. We open in black and white with Woody Allen looking uncomfortable in a train car. His fellow passengers appear mostly bored, but one is crying and a handful look specifically disappointed in Woody as he looks around the car. We're just going to refer to him as Woody. So far, yeah. I mean, I, I pretty much I switch like... over eventually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he turns to look out the window at another train full of happy partying passengers sharing drinks and conversations. One girl in particular sports a mink coat and cradles a golf trophy. She turns to smile at Woody through the window and kisses the glass toward him. This is the first feature film appearance of a young Sharon Stone. Oh, I didn't even recognize her. From outside the train, we see a muted conversation between Woody and the ticket taker. Woody seems to be making the case that he's on the wrong train and gestures to the party train out his window as they both start moving simultaneously. As the train gets up to speed, Woody panics and tries to escape the train car, banging on the rear door before yanking the emergency brake cord, but the cord has endless slack and he's just yanking it into a big pile on the floor of the train. I'm wondering if License to Drive homages uh, this scene later when it comes out, when he's like on the school bus, like trapped on the school bus and he can't get out. Interesting. And he's like trying to make his escape from this terrible school bus where everyone's chained. I wouldn't be surprised if that was a reference to this. Uh, there's a few strange inserts in this sequence, though. One is a blind passenger trying to open a door uh, before he officially starts freaking out. And one is a suitcase in the overhead compartment just dumping sand into the aisle, which I think is just time passing. Yeah, so I assume that all of the stuff that's happening here is, you know, metaphor and analogies to things that's going on in his head and that relates to stuff we're seeing later. But I really don't like starting the film with it because I have no idea about any of that stuff yet. Yeah, but even this isn't supposed to be a part of the movie yet. We're just watching footage from a movie that he's working on that he's presenting to producers right but i think from a from an overall arch of the movie like perspective these are supposed to be analogies to what he's going through and feeling but we don't really understand that yet and i'm not going to remember these details later in the movie when i do figure that out that's true but uh, woody allen movies like kubrick movies or uh chris nolan's trying to do the same thing are movies where (laughs) you have to watch them a few times to fully absorb what's going on. I don't like that. Yeah, but their fan bases do like that. They like having to watch it three or four times to get it. Yeah, but I think that there's a difference in some some of those movies because I think that for for Kubrick, I can really appreciate the film the first go-around. And it depends on the film. Granted, I've never watched a Woody Allen movie more than once ever because I've never liked a Woody Allen movie. Yeah. I don't know if it's better the second time because I didn't like it the first time. But well, a Kubrick movie, I like the first time. I think Woody Allen expects the audience to be overthinking it from frame one the whole time. To be completely 100% absorbed in the screen and to try and figure out what everything means as they're going. That's too much work. Well, that That's who he makes <laughs> movies for, though. Okay. We fade to a swarm of birds over a dump. The passengers of both trains converge on the dump, and uh, they're just pointing out things in this pile of garbage, and then the film strip runs out. And we get fuzzy silhouettes of studio heads standing up in a theater to pick the film apart. They're mad at how artsy and expensive it is, and they're worried that Woody Allen isn't funny anymore. But it's not Woody, it's this character. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we cut yeah. to. It's not Woody. It's yeah. this character. Yeah, it's definitely not a metaphor for his real life. I know he says <laughs> that it's not, and he's like, "Oh no, this was just a movie about a filmmaker," and it's like, right? But there's a lot of yeah. you in this that movie. To, yeah, as, of course. As much as you want to pretend like it's not a statement on your career and you as a person, it for sure is. Well, he's saying that because it's so incredibly obnoxious if it's him just bitching about his life as this movie. And so he wants to avoid that analogy to himself. Right. But of course that's what this is. Yeah. We cut to Woody in the backseat of a Rolls Royce on the phone with his agent. She admits to having recently forgotten to do a bunch of important things for him. At home, Sandy, the character Woody is playing here, is being henpecked by his legal team He's been honored with a film festival over the weekend and doesn't want to go. He has evolved as a filmmaker and doesn't want to talk to a bunch of rubes about his inconsequential comedy phase anymore. As Sandy speaks, the nook behind him is wallpapered with Eddie Adams' famous Saigon execution photograph, an indicator of the seriousness that Sandy wishes to convey at this stage in his career. I, you know, I don't feel funny. I, I look around the world and all I see is human suffering. Human suffering doesn't sell tickets in Kansas City. His entourage blames his recent macabre neuroses on the untimely death of nat bernstein a a character who we never fully flesh out so it's just someone he knows was named nat bernstein but the uncertainty of life has sent him into this existential tailspin hey did did anybody read on the front page of the times that matter is decaying am i the only one that saw that the universe is gradually breaking down there's not going to be anything left after everyone leaves his apartment sandy also exits frame and we're left with a completely empty shot of a white wall in Sandy's apartment, giving us a sneak preview of Sandy's fear, the universe's inevitable emptiness. He moves to the window to look out at the city and speaks to his at first unseen girlfriend, Dory, and they discuss eating in tonight before kissing a bit. I'm the best kisser. It was my major in college. Uh, at this point, because of the weird entrance of like, him speaking to her off camera yeah and then she comes in and i was like is she real yeah like is this really happening or is this something he's imagining and that's a question you might ask yourself again over the course of the yeah suddenly his cook is screaming from the apartment kitchen and she's no longer there which makes it feel like she wasn't there in the first place but i think she was and we're cutting to a different time period but the the chef is screaming because she started yet another oven fire He reprimands her for the recurring fires as he blasts an extinguisher into the oven. And we see this giant rabbit splayed across the counter that she was about to cook. And he reminds her that he does not want rabbit for dinner ever again. How many times have I told you, no rabbit? I thought you only meant just that one time. I never want rabbit. I don't eat eat rodent. I understand. You understand that? It's fur bearing. Never Never rabbit. Never want rabbit. Now that's clear. Sandy pulls up in his Rolls Royce to the festival at the hotel with a blinking sign that reads Stardust. He's greeted at the curb by an enormous crowd of fans, starting with the woman who organized the festival. The whole path up to the building, people are asking him to sign things and read things. We love your work. My wife has seen all your films. I especially like your early funny ones. <laughs> but he is suddenly distracted by a mother and son standing together in the grass. The boy is wearing a superhero cape and suddenly flies full speed into the sky. We cut to later in Sandy's hotel room. He's begging someone on the phone named Isabel to please come meet him at the festival. Later, after a screening of one of Sandy's early films, Sandy helms a Q&A session. He treats each question like an opportunity to do a quick stand-up bit, and the audience laughs basically no matter what he says, whether or not it's funny. So isn't this sort of the opposite? He's reinforcing everyone's ideas of him? It's the opposite of what he wanted? Yeah, I I think he's reluctantly going along with it, but it feels a lot like what Woody Allen actually does at Q&As for his own comedy films. Hmm. On his way out, he's swarmed with people who want his money, autograph, picture, or participation in their own artistic endeavors. Sandy seems fascinated by the only two people who aren't bothering him in this crowd, and he's magnetically drawn to them. Sandy tries to place a call and is repeatedly interrupted by fans who are then routinely escorted away from him, only to be replaced by new people for the duration of this whole scene, until the cool couple reappear and invite him out for a drink. I really don't... These scenes really bothered me because it just felt like he was complaining the whole time. I mean, this whole yeah. movie feels like he's complaining the whole time, but especially the scenes where the fans are coming up to him. And it just it just bothers me that he's upset about people appreciating his films or enjoying his work. And it's like, I understand that obviously fans can be obnoxious, but it just seems rude to make a movie about it. <laughs> yeah. 
and especially to make it look in the movie like you are endlessly patient with these people like never right. once does he say to anybody oh come on no not right now i'm trying to do something yeah it's always like he's he just takes whatever they have and signs it and hands it back and it's yeah. like i'm sure every once in a while you say no go away or yeah. you don't acknowledge the person but the things that that the things that people ask him to sign become more and more outlandish right like like someone hands him out like a book of matches a woman comes up and asks him to sign her breasts. Yeah, kid uh, gives him like a copy of Tom Sawyer or something yeah, like that. Yeah, like he's signing all kinds of books that have nothing to do with him. Uh, and then like one person wanted wanted it made out to to his ex wife, who he hates. Yeah, <laughs> you ungrateful bitch or something yeah. like that. But uh, he quickly agrees to this drink and leaves with the couple. On his way out of the building, another stranger tries to pitch him a movie, a comedy on the mass suicide in Guyana which in January of this year got its own non-comedy called Guiana Cult of the Damned, Sandy and his new friends head to a nightclub. The man of the couple talks to Sandy about the inherent rage behind comedy, but when he leaves to get everybody drinks, Sandy starts hitting on his girlfriend, a classical violinist named Daisy. The club announcer introduces the amazing Sandy, and we see a magic show being performed by young Sandy on stage. The audience is blown away by some mediocre magic tricks, and his mother in the audience credits hours of solitary practice. Someone asks if he isn't just masturbating, and she admits, Oh, he does that too. I found these pictures hidden in his drawer. <laughs> Suddenly, his therapist is there to corroborate Sandy's incessant masturbatory habits. It causes him great guilt. I don't know if I can ever cure him. I've been treating him for years already. Sandy and his friends return to the hotel late at night, where a young Daniel Stern, busboy and aspiring actor, tells Sandy what a big fan he is. He hands off a headshot, a resume, printed reviews of his work. We cut to a scene being shot on a beach. Sandy is meeting Dory for the first time and hitting on her between setups. You're, I gotta tell you, you're incredibly beautiful, whoever you are. Yeah, it's true, I am. I guess I'm a little on the beautiful side. At the start of their conversation, he addresses her from behind the camera, a trick we actually see a few times in this movie. It starts as a POV, with his conversation partner speaking directly into the camera, and then he walks into the shot and sits on an apple box next to her as they continue. We cut from this chat to Sandy and Dory kissing in the rain beside a carousel, and then pull back to reveal a full crew around them suggesting that he has cast his girlfriend as his love interest, or vice versa. As we continue the typical relationship montage, we see them arguing behind a wrought iron gate, and she slaps him before he starts laughing and turns to camera to say cut, and they end the take. So the entire relationship montage is also Fake. a montage in a movie. Mm -hmm. Back in Sandy's apartment, probably not on a set, we see that the Nook wallpaper is now replaced with a large photo of Groucho Marx and Maureen O'Sullivan, suggesting a happier period of his life. This movie jumps around in time a lot. Right. And it took me a little while to get who was the past, present, and maybe future yeah. or Dory is the earliest relationship in yeah. the story. I think I struggled till the very end with understanding the time frames of this movie. Yeah. Probably not coincidentally, O'Sullivan from this photograph is the mother of Alan's girlfriend at the time, Mia Farrow. Maureen is best known for having played Jane Parker opposite Johnny Weissmuller's Tarzan in a series of films. Dory needs some reassurances of her talents as an actress, and Sandy provides it until a pigeon flies into the apartment from the balcony, and Sandy ushers it back outside with the fire extinguisher. Back in the present, Sandy is headed back to his room at the film festival hotel when he flips on the light to find a woman in his bed. He thinks at first that he has the wrong room, but nope. A fan has tipped a porter for access to his room because she wants to sleep with him. Apparently her husband is also a fan and drove her here for this express purpose. This whole scene is a direct reference to a scene in John Huston's Wise Blood one year earlier, wherein Brad Dorif as Hazel Motes is surprised to find a woman in his bed with her boyfriend's blessing, played by the same actress, Amy Wright. Sandy tries to talk the woman out of bed, but eventually she talks him into it. Empty sex is better than no sex, right? And we cut to a chase scene through the snow with narration. We interrupt this program with a special bulletin. Sidney Finkelstein's hostility has escaped. Sidney leads a team of police and hunting dogs through the icy woods to the corpses of all the people he hates. He points out his mother actively being attacked by an enormous Sasquatch. A man approaches the monster offering to help. I'm a psychoanalyst. <laughs> this is my pipe. An audience laughs and it becomes clear that we're watching another of Sandy's early funny films. He does more stand-up at the Q&A. Moving back through the lobby afterwards, he's swarmed again by an old friend, people with political causes, 
but also looking for autographs, and a man with a script his son wrote, a parody about jockeys. The guy doesn't look older than 40, though, so I'm sure his son is in his early 20s at best. Outside, he's practically body slammed against the building by a huge man looking for an autograph who announces without context that he was a cesarean. Although I might have guessed that anyway, based on his size alone. <laughs> this is Irwin Keyes, by the way, who we've had a couple times this year already. Mm-hmm. He was, uh, he worked in the diner in the beginning of Friday the 13th. I don't think he had a single line. Yeah. And then he played the hunchback in Private Eyes. Yeah. As Irwin walks away, Sandy notices Isabel arriving, apparently having accepted his phone invite. Isabel announces that her husband found out about their affair and they are divorcing. Sandy puts on a supportive face but is clearly terrified that this relationship is close to being real now. In the hotel screening room later, Sandy finds Daisy, the classical violinist, sitting alone. She tells Sandy that she had an erotic dream about him last night but refuses to elaborate at this stage in their relationship. We cut back in time to Sandy's relationship with Dory again. They're arriving home to the apartment and she's furious because he was hitting on her 13-year-old cousin. Or at least flirting with her. Yeah. yeah. And, and then he says, doesn't me fl- flirting with a, with a young kid, doesn't that sound ridiculous? And I was like, does it? <laughs> I mean, so this movie was made before he was in a relationship with his, is it girlfriend his adopted, at the time's do- adopted, adopted daughter. His girlfriend's adopted daughter, who right. was so young and also so young. What is her name? Sunyi. Sunyi. Um, yeah, she was so young and that's so inappropriate. And so everything I see in this movie about him being skeezy with women, just like, it just grosses me out. I I think about this, their relationship and like, I don't know, people might not have a problem with it, but it bothers me and it bothers me when he interacts with every woman in this movie. I think most people thought it was pretty gross at the time and probably still do. Uh, The Nook wallpaper now is a newspaper page. And cropped just to the right of Sandy's defensive argument here are the words incest between fathers and, and then it's cut off. <laughs> Why is this so prophetic? I don't, I don't think it's prophetic as much as it's just like he just admits everything that he can in his movies because it makes them more interesting. I I, I guess. I, I, I guess he understood years before it happened that he was going to, to do these things because that's just who he is. Well, as much as Woody Allen would like to distance himself from the character, it's clear that this is based on some real-life argument that he's had with someone. It's especially disturbing because Woody Allen's current wife, Soon Yi, was 10 at the time of filming and was adopted two years earlier by Allen's then-girlfriend, Mia Farrow. So he'd already met her. So he her knew her at this time. Ugh. And was with Mia Farrow, and they probably had this argument in real life, but about a 10-year-old. <gasps> I'm not saying this is a specific reference to her, and I hope to God it's not, but it really seems like it is. It sure does seem that way. Sandy brings Isabel to meet his sister while they're in the neighborhood. He seems not to have called ahead, so she's hosting a yoga class in the apartment. Sister introduces a friend from the class, bloodied and bruised from a recent violent assault and rape in her apartment, but it's played off as a joke somehow. Yeah, my, my note is... What's with this rape joke? Yeah. Is this like a bit? Look at this face. Someone oh, broke into her house last week. They robbed her. Uh, in the suburbs? They raped her. And they did. That, uh, Isabel, really? they raped her over and over again. They horrible. tied her to the bed. Do you believe with it? my scar. Really? I didn't even resist. I'm, I'm sure you didn't resist. Knowing I'm you, crazy. I mean, you, so Come on you, and how about a drink? Oh. Isabel, coffee, tea? Because it's a very personal thing that you wouldn't want to just blurt out to a stranger. So they're very graphic with it. Sister tells Sandy that he should say hi to Sam, her husband, while he's there. Sandy goes to talk to Sam while he's working out on an exercise bike. He says he's had four heart attacks, two before the bike and two after the bike. Sam rings the bike bell incessantly throughout this whole scene. I had two heart attacks before I got the bicycle. Mm -hmm. And since then? I also had two. Sister asks Sandy if he's going to marry this girl, and Sam continues ringing the bell until they finally leave the room. I bought him a bell for Christmas and I never hear the end of it. Turns out he only rings the bell so that people leave the room. And once they do, he stops down on the bike and starts smoking again. On the way home with Isabel, Sandy's chauffeur is pulled over and arrested for mail fraud. Sandy calls his agent to complain about now having gone through six chauffeurs in two years because she hires such terrible people. This reminds her to relay a warning from his doctor that he should stop using the prescription shampoo he's been on for nine months because it causes skin cancer. 
While he talks on the phone, a woman approaches, asking him to sign her left breast, and the next time we see her, it is signed. We cut to Jazz Heaven. All the people from the train that started the film are walking around a row of jazz musicians dressed in all white, some with wings, on a cloudy stage. Sandy's voice pipes in to complain about this imagery. It turns out we're looking at a rewrite to the end of Sandy's latest film. They thought he'd like it just because he likes jazz. While he argues with the same batch of studio executives who tore the film apart at the beginning, he's constantly interrupted by autograph hounds. The female exec says, This public adores him. Yeah, today they adore you and tomorrow it's one of these. And he makes a gun gesture with his hand. This is a, another prophetic image. As later in the year, a mere six hours after requesting his autograph, Mark David Chapman approached John Lennon on the street and shot him four times, killing him. We get a quick conversation between Sandy and Isabel in the hotel, with him begging her to move in, and she resists while doing disconcerting facial exercises. <laughs> She's just making these weird smiles and frowns and O faces so that she can work out the muscles in her face. We cut to another scene from an early funny film. Sandy is playing a respected New York doctor and is being lectured by another doctor for his crazy experiments. He has two women on slabs. His plan is to switch the brain of the intellectual but unattractive woman into the sexually attractive but mean woman's body. And I thought, why not? What the hell? I'm a surgeon. Surgeon? Where'd you study medicine? In Transylvania? The joke of the film apparently being that afterward, he fell in love with the unattractive mean girl. This time the actor, Roberts, playing the other doctor in the scene, is here to endure the Q&A with Sandy. Later they have dinner together and discuss women. Roberts is with a Playboy centerfold and tells Sandy that he should get over Dory because she was a lunatic 28 days of the month. Yeah, yeah, she could be very fine and yeah. funny and bright and wonderful exactly. two days a month. The other 28, she was lost. Not what a two days. They reminisce about a trip they took to some yard with huge concrete pipes, and Dory spent the whole day just taking pictures of everything. On the way back to his room, Sandy is cornered by his childhood friend from earlier in the week, who basically just complains that he's not as successful as Sandy, but then Sandy suggests they should both celebrate being luckier than Nat Bernstein, the dead guy we brought up earlier and won't bring up again. The next day, Sandy wraps up a phone call with his lawyers, considering a lawsuit against the studio for changing the end of his film. But when he hangs up, he hears Daisy on the neighboring payphone. She's having a rough time. Apparently, an ex-lover left her a message and she had a breakdown about it. We cut to Sandy and Isabel heading into the train station to pick up her children. Sandy feels bad that they rode in unattended. Who knows what goes on in those things? You know, there's a lot of weird people out there, a lot of perverts and, and crazies. They're liable to get molested or robbed. Oh, not my children. Maybe the other way around. Like she expects her children to molest people. <laughs> Once they've collected her children, they head to an ice cream parlor where everyone inside is distracted by their poor behavior. They keep yelling at Sandy in French, calling him an idiot and demanding ice cream. Out the window, Sandy notices an elephant on the beach, and we cut to a shot of Sandy as a child receiving a birthday gift from adult Dory, and then he runs out of frame and returns as adult Sandy, and he's very thankful for the flute gift that she gave him. She follows it up with a book, The Way of Zen. What are you trying to tell me? That, that I'm not at peace, right? I, I think I need more than a Zen book. I need a, a either a good rabbi, analyst, or interplanetary genius to, uh, what is that? Of course, one of these needs will be met before the close of the film. She surprises him again with a third gift, a pocket watch he is evidently familiar with. Apparently she bought it at an auction or something. It's very expensive. He tells her that he's always wanted an elephant. Isabel and Sandy run into Daisy and her boyfriend near the hotel. Daisy mentions that the bicycle thief is playing nearby. Boyfriend isn't interested and Isabel needs to stay with the kids, so Sandy and Daisy go together. After the movie, Sandy and Daisy discuss the themes and wander around on the beachfront into like an empty building until a woman interrupts them who happened to play Sandy's mother in a film and they discuss her many plastic surgeries and play a bit of catch up. We cut to another argument between Dory and Sandy on another set. Dory's having a panic attack because Sandy has cast her in the lead and she feels inferior to another actress on set. She's taking speed pills to lose weight and sleeping pills to sleep and antidepressants in between. But nothing seems to be working because she says she's fat and tired. Oh shit, now my skin hurts. That's a sure sign I'm getting depressed. We cut back to the Rolls Royce, and Sandy is driving. They're headed back to the hotel, and Daisy asks if she really looks like an old girlfriend of his, so clearly he feels too committed to Isabel and is starting something with a younger girl. Sandy tries to change the subject, but she brings it back. So how do I remind you of Dory? And Sandy doesn't have a clearer answer then. I find you both attractive, and you both have a certain je ne sais quoi. Luckily for Sandy, the car breaks down, or possibly just runs out of gas now that Sandy's in charge of keeping it functional. 
They walk down the road and stumble upon a group of UFO worshippers, preparing for an imminent landing. In a single shot, we swing around the crowd of ufologists as they harass Sandy directly into camera until he steps out from behind it again to stomp across the field. In another POV shot, we observe the crowd, including a second appearance by Sharon Stone, kissing the windshield of a pickup truck from inside of it. Because we haven't broken the fourth wall enough times yet, a guy walks up and says, Hey, it's like we're all actors in a movie, playing in God's screening room, before he is unceremoniously devoured by the Sasquatch from Sandy's early filmography. Daisy admits that she thought she saw a UFO once, though she was on mescaline at the time, having an affair with a college professor in Mexico. She asks if Sandy can show her a magic trick from his childhood, and he levitates her over a field. We get a quick montage of all the characters we've encountered so far criticizing Sandy to his face about all of his life problems, ending with Roberts asking if he remembers the last time he saw Dory. We see one last wide shot of Daisy levitating horizontally in the field before we cut to an extreme close-up of Dory, and the first thing she says is, There's a doctor here that thinks I'm beautiful and interesting. There's a doctor here that thinks I'm beautiful and interesting. Are you seeing anyone? You look thin. There's a doctor here that's crazy about me. The implication being that she's been committed to a hospital as a result of her rampant over-medication or other problems. This is the last time Sandy saw her, and it's what's been eating him up for most of the film. The shot has a lot of jump cuts, and Dory is starting her lines over the way an actress would, but it seems like she's not acting anymore. Early in the film, Sandy asks how long she's been acting, and she says, I feel like I'm always acting. And it makes more sense now. She says a line and then does another take, either believing she's still acting out her life, or that she's plain forgetting what she's already said. It's actually a pretty heartbreaking sequence. Yeah. And Dory's tearing up for the whole thing. Back in the present, Sandy is running through the woods after a team of retreating aliens. Wait a minute, don't go. I've got some questions. We can't breathe your air. If nothing lasts, then why am I bothering to make movies? We enjoy your films, particularly the early funny ones. Sandy admits that, yes, he's had good times with Dory, and the alien points out Isabel too. The aliens seem to prefer Isabel, as she is a mature woman and a responsible partner for Sandy to settle down with. When Sandy protests, the aliens remind him, Hey, look, I'm a super intelligent being. By Earth standards, I have an IQ of 1600, and I can't even understand what you expected from that relationship with Dory. I loved her. They point out that two days a month, she was great, and the rest she was a basket case. The aliens are just echoing and paraphrasing what he's already heard throughout the film from his fans and friends. Sandy asks if he should quit filmmaking to help humanity in some way. You want to do mankind a real service? Tell funnier jokes. The reflected lights of the UFO in Sandy's classes fade to black, and we see a group of hot air balloons coming in for landing. Sandy, One, one lands very hard. All three of them tip over when they're landing. With, yeah, but one of them has like a bunch of people running towards it. Like, like it's on, on accident. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, God. I, just, I'm sure they only had like three or four that they could work with, and they couldn't send them up and bring them back down in the same... Mm-hmm. shoot day so they had to go with what they had i guess sandy admits to daisy that he actually expected saucers to land not balloons he tells daisy that he just wants to run away with her now and they kiss isabel and the woman who organized the festival along with some police arrive apparently thinking the worst when they found the car on the side of the road sandy just starts yelling at everybody he goes off on the whole group about why why do you all need stuff from me and then he admits to isabel that he doesn't want her to move in that he never wanted to get married and he's not ready to commit to a family. And as soon as she hears this, she just immediately turns and walks away from him. A man from the UFO group says, You know you're my hero. Sandy is rolled into an operating room, and a doctor announces his death. Another doctor steps in front of the camera eating an apple and says, It's a shame. Poor fool, he's dead, and he never really found out the meaning of life. I just really love the actress's delivery of this line. So I'm going to play it again for my own benefit when I re-listen to this episode. It's a shame. Poor fool, he's dead, and he never really found out the meaning of life. We cut to a bubbling volcano behind Sandy's therapist, and he says, He saw reality too clearly. Faulty denial mechanism. As though he died from being a realist and not the gunshot wound. His therapist has decided to name Sandy's condition Ozymandias Melancholia. The woman running the festival takes over for Sandy's therapist at the podium to present Sandy with a plaque posthumously, though he accepts the the award in person. 
He recalls a Sunday morning from his past, sitting around the apartment with Dory. He stares at her reading on the floor while listening to a Louis Armstrong record. The specific track is Stardust, from which the film gets its title. This memory is the happiest of his lifetime, hence Stardust Memories. Back in the screening room, the audience takes turns lambasting and applauding his work. And in the hospital, Sandy wakes up with Isabel. Turns out he wasn't shot, he just fainted and imagined the assassination. Before completely regaining consciousness, he moans Dory's name a couple of times, which drives Isabel from the room. He follows her out of the building where he runs headlong into two cops who found a gun in his car that he doesn't have a permit for. They found it in the glove compartment, though, which is weird because I'm not sure why they would have had cause to search the car in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I seriously doubt they would invite the kind of trouble that comes with arresting Rolls Royce drivers. Yeah, um, I guess because he was claiming he was shot, and they were investigating the scene. Or maybe they had to drive the car back. Yeah. Because it was broken down. But he tells them, you can make an exception for me. I'm a celebrity. And we cut to him in jail. And he's sharing the cell with his mail-frauding chauffeur. Sandy catches up with Isabel and her kids on their way into the train station. Again, he reverses course, asking her to please move in with him. And if she were a good mom, she would just say no and stick to it. Because this guy's changed his mind three times in the last 48 hours. He follows her all the way to her seat on the train, where he continues to plead with her, and he tells her a new ending that he just came up with for his film. Realizing she's actually listening, he takes the opportunity to rewrite her character live. There's this character that's based on you that's very warm and very giving, and you're absolutely nuts over me. You're just crazy about me. You just think I'm the most wonderful thing in the world. Despite him being fairly shitty this weekend, she is smiling at this description of herself, and I got a Ruby Sparks vibe that he's just changing her on the fly because a real person wouldn't be okay with any of this. And despite the fact that I do a lot of foolish things, because you realize that, down deep, I'm not evil or anything, she even tells him here, it doesn't sound realistic. But she goes along with it anyway because the script dictates her fate. He tells her that it should end with a big wet kiss, and it does, and the audience applauds as the train pulls away, this time in the opposite direction that it did at the start of the film. The lights come up in the theater, and everyone shares their reactions to the film we just watched. Isabel, Daisy, and Dory were just characters in a film, and they joke with each other about Sandy's irritating habit of open-mouth kissing on set. Because he's not party to these conversations, it feels probably intentionally like the end of a funeral, his life having played out on the screen and people sharing remembrances of his accomplishments and faults. Everyone leaves, and we see the empty theater with the aisle down the center, and arches overhead, and it's hard not to see a church. Sandy walks down the aisle to collect his glasses from his seat and takes one last look at the screen before exiting frame again, and the lights go out. And that's the end of our film. <sighs> I, I found this to be a more tolerable Woody Allen film. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a big Woody Allen guy, and I find them mostly infuriating. I think this is no exception. I... I I mean, it, for me, it was... I think this character is less irritating than his Annie Hall character or... Well, I don't like any Woody Allen movies, and I don't like any of his characters in the movies, but I, I think this is just... It, it, it's infuriating maybe for different reasons than his other movies. <laughs> yeah. I think you would really like uh, Interiors, actually. Okay, well... You'll have a hard time getting me to watch it unless it's He's in not 1980. In it. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, like, it's like same with like like Purple Rose of Cairo. Yeah, like yeah, I, I like that. And I actually liked Midnight in Paris. Mm. That's the one with Owen Wilson, where yeah, yeah, yeah. it keeps going back in time. Uh, that one's fun. Yeah, I ninety percent of the dialogue in this film was not important to any sort of plot whatsoever, yeah. and it, everything seemed self-serving to Woody Allen and to his character in this movie, which was just obnoxious because I didn't like the character. Yeah. It feels like most of the theme of the movie is that for a filmmaker, your, your filmography and your life are kind of the same thing. And so you cut back and forth from the two things wildly and not giving the audience a chance to figure out which one they're in. Yeah. I mean, I suppose people can like it because there's, you know, deep analogies and commentary and stuff like that. But I, I just, I, I don't, I don't care for this guy. You know, yeah. I, I don't care for this character in this film. Uh, so I, I, I don't really want to invest in figuring out what everything means. Yeah, that makes sense. Huh. 
Obviously, our writer-director here was Woody Allen, who's playing Sandy Bates in the film. He wrote and directed and starred in Manhattan, Annie Hall, Crimes and Misdemeanors. My favorite movie of his was Interiors, but most people do not like it. And a lot of people think that this film was a response to people not liking Interiors. Uh, Between Annie Hall in 77 and now, he's directed at least one feature film every year, except for 1981 and 2018. He's currently married to Sunyi Previn, his ex-girlfriend Mia Farrow's adopted daughter. Charlotte Rampling was Dory. Her first credit was Girl at Disco in 1964's Hard Day's Night. She played a hitchhiker in a deleted scene from Vanishing Point. She's Consuela in Zardoz. Zardoz. (laughs) She plays Rachel Bedford in Orca. She's Margaret Kruzmark in Angel Heart. Thank you for getting that Orca reference in there for me, too. Yep. (laughs) I know the rules. Uh, She's Gabby in Melancholia, not Ozymandias Melancholia, just Melancholia. And she plays a neuropsychiatrist, uh, Dr. Evelyn Vogel, in season eight of Dexter. And pretty soon she'll be Gaius Helen Mohayam in uh, Villeneuve's Dune remake that's coming out. Oh. Jessica Harper played Daisy. She was Phoenix in Phantom of the Paradise. She's Susie Banyan in Suspiria. And she came back as Anki or Anki in the recent remake. Next year, she'll play Janet. Next year, as in 1981, she'll be playing Janet Majors in Shock Treatment, taking over for Susan Sarandon. She plays Phoebe Bass on The Gary Shandling Show, and she was Anne Lively in Minority Report. Marie Christine Baralt played Isabel. Uh, most of her work is in French films, and I'm embarrassed to say I don't know my French cinema especially well, so I couldn't tell you which of these are standout performances or even how to pronounce them properly. But she has a lot of work. Look into it if you care. <laughs> Tony Roberts plays Tony Roberts, basically. He was yeah. Mike Berger, the pansy grandson, and Just Tell Me What You Want earlier this year. Uh, he's in a few Allen movies, played again Sam, Annie Hall, a Midsummer Night's sex comedy, Hannah and Her Sisters, Radio Days. He also makes appearances in Serpico, Pelham 123, and Amityville 3D. Daniel Stern played actor. He's Marv in the Home Alones. He's well, the first two Home Alones, I should say. Yeah, yeah. He had the good sense to step away from that franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, he plays adult Kevin, not in any Home Alones, but as a narrator on The Wonder Years. <laughs> uh, he was also a different Savage's dad in Little Monsters. Uh, he was Phil in City Slickers. Uh, we had him earlier this year as a draft dodger in a small circle of friends. He plays Ben Frankenstein in Frankenweenie. He's the Reverend in Chud. And he was also in Bushwhacked, Celtic Pride. He's the voice of Dilbert. And he played Adam Burkow in Very Bad Things. Amy Wright was Shelley. That's Wait. the woman who... Sorry. Sorry, my brain is still trying to catch up. Isn't it the same Savage? They're both They're both Savages. <laughs> <laughs> they're both sibling Savages, savages. Are, are in Little Monsters. Oh, they're, they're both in there. Yeah, they're both in there. Oh, okay. And they play brothers. Yes. But he, he's, he has played both of their father. Well, I guess he's not the father. He's not no, the he's father. not the father. He is, he's, he he is. is the savage in <laughs> The Wonder Years. <laughs> yes. He is the savage. His father is also a savage. Which though. one's the main character of Little Monsters? Fred. Fred Savage. Fred Savage. Yeah. Ben's not the main character of anything. No, just just Boy Meets World, basically. Right, but but that's what I'm saying. The main character of The Wonder Years and the main character of Little Monsters is the right. same person. Yeah. But both of them are in Little Monsters, is my point. Okay. That, that he was he's worked with both of the savage bros okay he's not the dad in uh do they even show a dad in uh the princess bride who's the dad in the princess bride they don't show they a dad, show the dad. just the mom, mom. Okay. and uh grandpa. the grandpa amy wright was shelly that's the girl who surprises woody allen in his bed uh she played a bridesmaid in deer hunter she was nancy in breaking away in Synecdoche, New York, she plays a realtor showing off a house that is actively on fire. <laughs> uh, she was also Jackie in the first Amityville Horror. As I said before, she was Sabbath Lily in Wise Blood the previous year, and we'll have her again in 1980 as Anne in Inside Moves. Helen Haft played Vivian Orkin. That's the woman who organized the film festival in his honor. She plays a party guest in Manhattan. She's Mrs. Helberg in License to Drive. She plays Lottie in Moonstruck. And we had her earlier this year as a used car salesperson in Willie and Phil. John Rothman played Jack Abel. That's the boyfriend of the classical violinist. This was his first film. 
He plays a librarian in Sophie's Choice and also sort of a librarian. He's a library administrator in Ghostbusters. He's the one who says, What has that got to do with it? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. He's also Phil in Big. He's a dentist in Synecdoche. And he plays Tignataro's stepfather on the Amazon series One Mississippi. Leonardo Semino was Sandy's analyst. He plays an elder in Waterworld. He's Cardinal in Hudson Hawk. He's the Baron's doctor in Dune. He's a scary German guy in Monster Squad. Mm-hmm. And we had him earlier this year as Don Venucci in Hide in Plain Sight. David Lipman played Sandy's chauffeur. He played the state senator in The Exterminator who got shot in the dick or thereabouts. Uh, he also plays a customer of Frankenhooker in that film. And he's a movie patron in Weekend at Bernie's 2. Sharon Stone played Pretty Girl on Train. She's Ellen in The Quick and the Dead. She's Ginger McKenna in Casino. She's Catherine Trammell in Basic Instinct and Last Action Hero. She's Jesse Houston in Alan Quartermain in The Lost City of Gold. Lori in Total Recall. Beth in Sphere. Laura in Broken Flowers. And Gloria in Gloria, the remake of Gloria starring Gina Rollins, which we'll be covering this year. Brent Spiner is apparently somewhere in that lobby as one of the fans. Yeah, I looked for him, and I think I see him because it's it's one of the few fans that has a line. Yeah. But it it's really hard because he doesn't – it didn't look – he looks older in this movie. Weird. And so uh, I, I don't know if, if it was for sure who I was thinking of. But if you're a fan of Brent Spiner's, it's probably from Star Trek or either of the Independence Days because he's in both despite dying in the first yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Erwin Keyes, we already went over him, and Lorraine Newman played one of the studio executives. She's from SNL and Holy Moses earlier this year. She plays Larda in Coneheads. She's Frog-Eyed Woman in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. She plays LaWanda Dumore in Problem Child 2. She does the voice of Gran on the Crude's TV show. She has literally hundreds of additional voices credits yeah. in dozens of animated series working for Pixar, DreamWorks, Nickel- Nickelodeon, Fox, all over the place. Uh, but uh, Luis Lasser, who we had in uh, Give Me That Primetime Religion, uh, who played uh, the love interest. Oh, really? Yeah, she was the secretary in this movie. Oh, interesting. The one who kept mixing up all his appointments. Is that right? Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. Sandy secretary, uncredited. She looks very different. I I, 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 I recognized her right away, Wait, um, but I couldn't find Give Me That Primetime Religion, you're talking about In God We Trust? Yeah. The one that looked like Madeline Kahn. Or the one where we think Madeline Kahn's role should would have gone to. And it's the same actress. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. I didn't I did not recognize her. She was also Woody Allen's first wife. Oh really? Yeah. Oh. Uh and I want to bring up uh Irving Metzman, who I believe is credited as his lawyer. I'm trying to there's a lot of people in this cast because so many people come up to him. And so scrolling through this list is Yeah, I was worried about that the first past watching it i was like there's too many faces coming up to the camera and talking these are all going to be people i have to have credits for yeah uh yeah so irving metzman uh i i only recognized him because i couldn't i, I heard his voice and i was like i know that voice um he plays uh richter uh in war games who's the the second in command of the computer division after dabney coleman oh okay uh he he's like the the He's one of the technicians, like, but he's a more important technician. Yeah. Uh, and then I also wanted to bring up, because I always like him and stuff, uh, Roy Brocksmith. Um, he, That's a cool name. Yeah, Roy Brocksmith. He uh, was in Total Recall with Sharon Stone. He was the uh, the head of Recall, who was s- the fake head of Recall, who was programmed in to try to get him to convince him to kill himself. Yeah. Um, he's also... Who he shoots, right? Yeah, he shoots in yeah. the head. Uh, he's also the 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 lead character in uh scrooged of the dog show that he's on it's like he plays the mailman who's trying to go oh, like, okay it's a bone it's a bone you lucky dog uh he's he's in a lot of stuff he's a great character actor and so i always like to bring him up when i see him and stuff yeah that's fun up or down jess <laughs> i'm gonna give it a down yeah sorry no that's that's fair it's not don't be sorry I'm also giving it down <laughs> uh, as as much as I, like I said before, I did find this to be a more tolerable and somewhat more interesting, probably because it's more revealing Woody Allen film where I feel like, yeah, he's just, this is just himself. And 
and sorry to regurgitate what you said, Jesse, about him, his opinions of his fans just coming yeah. up to him. And I was like, yeah, yeah, this is this is just about you. It's all about you. Yeah. Uh, well, what really bothers me about that whole thing is, I mean, this is this is presuming that it is in fact autobiographical, and I know we've established that, that he says he it's, claims not, it's not. He claims it's not. Yeah. That he claims it's not. But if you are frust- a frustrated filmmaker because your previous work was comedies, and now you want to do something else. Why would this kind of movie be what you do? Because if you think that there's a lot of really important things in the world, there's a lot of, you know, hatred and sadness and and terrible things happening. Why would you do a self-serving film that's just about you and woe is me, the troubles I have to deal with that are so inconsequential? Even if it's not about you, why would you do a meta movie that's about a film director that's so much like you, played by you? Yeah, but like address the things that you think are important. Not the not some, you know, pe- petty things that are happening in your life that maybe seem important to you, but really don't matter to the larger scheme of things. And that's that's another sort of uh, characteristic of Woody Allen, the person that has been a common theme in his like public persona, that he's very disappointed in his own filmography, that he's said multiple times like, I can make whatever movie I want every year, and the stuff I make isn't worth making. Like, he's made that point many mm. times. But it's crazy that he has stuck to doing almost one a year every year since the 70s. I mean, on average, it's been one a year because there are a couple years where he ha- he's had more than one movie come yeah. out. Yeah. To be fair, I have not seen a lot of them because I I didn't like the ones that I've seen. You've I've had generally, some bad experience. <laughs> I've generally stayed clear of his movies, so I shouldn't make broad generalizations about them, but I don't feel like this is... I mean, at the very watching. least, every every Woody Allen movie is a is not going to be high concept or have like a lot of plot to it. They're all character pieces, which is why you're not going to like them. They're all slice of life character pieces, and so many of them are just about Woody Allen specifically or Woody Allen's avatar for that movie. So, like in Melinda and Melinda, Will Ferrell is the character right. that's playing the same guy. But in addition to being slice of life character pieces and dialogue driven type stuff, it's not it's i i find this stuff really pretentious to 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 try to build meaning into this meaningless stuff you know and i and i don't i don't like to have to try to dissect a film to be you know like i enjoy when you build things in an artistic manner and being like look we've you know we've we've reflected the you know dichotomy of this character in this in the way that this shot was set up or something like that like i enjoy those things but the if the essence of the film is just going through and 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 that's that's all they're trying to offer you you know like it's not enough it's not enough it has it has to be something that's been layered on top of, of something that's story. already interesting that you know that and that's not what this is yeah that makes sense um where does this go letterboxed wise for you wait did you give it an up or a down i give it an up okay all right do you want to give me letterbox or do you want Richard to go first? I find it really hard to place on letterbox. Um, because my letterbox is ordered by what you'd want to what watch I want to watch again, and I don't really want to watch this one again. Um, so that puts it really low, but that doesn't mean that it was a poorly made sure, movie. Sure, but it goes, I would assume, under the Windows threshold because the point is that that's Speaking of which, I think Gordon Willis uh, was the cinematographer for this film. We he didn't was. mention that. Um, but right, he directed Interiors Windows. Interiors was what inspired the title of Windows, right? <laughs> That's right, because they threw out the title Windows, mm-hmm. and he was like, scooped it up off the floor, like, Yoink. perfect. This will get me some Razzies. I don't know. Richard, you go first. All right. Uh, I have this at uh, number 78, uh, right below Kidnapping of a President and right above Phobia. Okay. Does that make you feel better, Jess? <laughs> it is right around the range I was looking. Um, I'm going to put it below The Exterminator and above Melvin and Howard, which is 91. All right. Um, kind of same place. I have it in 12th. <laughs> um, it's just under The Stuntman and just above Zombie Flesh Eaters, which is what Letterboxd calls it. But I'm going to call it Zombie because that's what, that's what uh, Fulci wanted it to be called. 
So right above zombie and right under the stuntman. That's where I have it. I think that's everything for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Without Warning which IMDb describes like so. An alien creature stalks human prey. That's all you get. Uh, That's all I need. (laughs) That's all I needed. We leave you now with the trailer for Without Warning. The hunting season has begun. But the hunter isn't human. Only the prey are. It came without warning like nothing on this earth. Our friends are dead. Beyond any known terror. Stop that horrible creature. Come on, come on. It's chasing me. Because when it leaves this planet, no one may be left alive. Look, I'm warning you. When they start eating on you, don't come to me for help. <laughs> Baby! He came down here to the spot. He wants to get himself a few trophies. You know what? Right now, you and me, we are the prize game. The hunter. The hunted. That was no dream. The thing that preys on human fear and feeds on human flesh. From deepest space it came. And now, man is the endangered species. It came without warning. And now it's coming for you.